Section 11 of A Lear of the Steps, etc., by Ivan Turgenev. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Weimar, 1870. Faust. Goethe. Faust, a story in nine letters. Und Beren sollst du, sollst und Beren. Faust, Part One. First Letter from Pavel Alexandrovitch, B., to Semyon Nikolaevitch, V., M. Village, 6th June, 1850. I have been here for three days, my dear fellow, and, as I promised, I take up my pen to write to you. It has been drizzling with fine rain ever since the morning. I can't go out, and I want a little chat with you, too. Here I am again in my old home, where, it's a dreadful thing to say, I have not been for nine long years. Really, as you may fancy, I have become quite a different man. Yes, utterly different indeed. Do you remember, in the drawing-room, the little tarnished looking-glass of my great-grandmother's, with the queer little curly scrolls in the corners? You always used to be speculating on what it had seen a hundred years ago directly I arrived, I went up to it, and I could not help feeling disconcerted. I suddenly saw how old and changed I had become in these last years, but I am not alone in that respect. My little house, which was old and tottering long ago, will hardly hold together now. It is all on the slant, and seems sunk into the ground. My dear Vasilyevna, the housekeeper, you can't have forgotten her, she used to regale you with such capital jam, is quite shrivelled up and bent. When she saw me she could not call out, and did not start crying, but only moaned and choked, sank helplessly into a chair, and waved her hand. Old Terenti has some spirit left in him still. He holds himself up as much as ever, and turns out his feet as he walks. He still wears the same yellow nankeen breeches, and the same creaking goatskin slippers, with high heels and ribbons, which touched you so much sometimes. But mercy on us! How the breeches flap about his thin legs nowadays! How white his hair has grown! And his face has shrunk up into a sort of little fist. When he speaks to me, when he begins directing the servants, and giving orders in the next room, it makes me laugh and feel sorry for him. All his teeth are gone, and he mumbles with a whistling, hissing sound. On the other hand, the garden has got on wonderfully. The modest little plants of lilac, acacia, and honeysuckle, do you remember, we planted them together, have grown into splendid thick bushes. The birches, the maples, all that has spread out and grown tall. The avenues of lime-trees are particularly fine. I love those avenues, I love the tender grey, green colour, and the delicate fragrance of the air under their arching boughs. I love the changing network of rings of light on the dark earth, there is no sand here, you know. My favourite oak sapling has grown into a young oak-tree. Yesterday I spent more than an hour in the middle of the day on a garden bench in its shade. I felt very happy. All about me the grass was deliciously luxuriant, a rich soft golden light lay upon everything. It made its way even into the shade, and the birds one could hear. 
You've not forgotten, I expect, that birds are a passion of mine? The turtle-doves cooed unceasingly. From time to time there came the whistle of the oriole. The chaffinch uttered its sweet little refrain. The blackbirds quarrelled and twittered. The cuckoo called far away. Suddenly, like a mad thing, the woodpecker uttered its shrill cry. I listened and listened to this subdued, mingled sound, and did not want to move, while my heart was full of something between languor and tenderness. And it's not only the garden that has grown up. I am continually coming across sturdy, thick-set lads whom I cannot recognize as the little boys I used to know in old days. Your favourite, Timosha, has turned into a Timofei, such as you could never imagine. You had fears in those days for his health, and predicted consumption, but now you should just see his huge red hands as they stick out from the narrow sleeves of his nankeen coat, and the stout rounded muscles that stand out all over him. He has a neck like a bull's, and a head all over tight fair curls, a regular Farnes Hercules. His face, though, has changed less than the others. It is not even much larger in circumference, and the good-humoured, gaping, as you used to say, smile, has remained the same. I have taken him to be my valet. I got rid of my Petersburg fellow at Moscow. He was really too fond of putting me to shame, and making me feel the superiority of his Petersburg manners. Of my dogs I have not found one. They have all passed away. Nefka lived longer than any of them, and she did not live till my return, as Argos lived till the return of Ulysses. She was not fated to look once more with her lustreless eyes on her master and companion in the chase. But Shavka is all right, and barks as hoarsely as ever, and has one ear torn just the same, and burrs sticking to his tail, all just as it should be. I have taken up my abode in what was your room. It is true the sun beats down upon it, and there are a lot of flies in it, but there is less of the smell of the old house in it than in the other rooms. It's a queer thing. That musty, rather sour, faint smell has a powerful effect on my imagination. I don't mean that it's disagreeable to me, quite the contrary, but it produces melancholy, and at last depression. I am very fond, just as you are, of podgy old chests with brass plates, white armchairs with oval backs and crooked legs, fly-blown glass lustres with a big egg of lilac tinsel in the centre, of all sorts of ancestral furniture, in fact. But I can't stand seeing it all continually. A sort of agitated dejection, it is just that, takes possession of me. In the room where I have established myself, the furniture is of the most ordinary home-made description. I have left, though, in the corner a long narrow set of shelves, on which there is an old-fashioned set of blown green and blue glasses, just discernible through the dust. And I have had hung on the wall that portrait of a woman, you remember, in the black frame, that you used to call the portrait of Manon Lescaut. It has got rather darker in these nine years, but the eyes have the same pensive, sly, and tender look, the lips have the same capricious, melancholy smile, and the half-plucked rose falls as softly as ever from her slender fingers. I am greatly amused by the blinds in my room. They were once green, but have turned yellow by the sun. 
On them are depicted, in dark colours, scenes from Darlincourt's Hermit. On one curtain the Hermit, with an immense beard, goggle eyes and sandals on his feet, is carrying off a young lady with dishevelled locks to the mountains. On another one there is a terrific combat going on between four knights wearing berettas, and with puffs on their shoulders. One, much foreshortened, lies slain. In fact, there are pictures of all sorts of horrors, while all about there is such unbroken peace, and the blinds themselves throw such soft light on the ceiling. A sort of inward calm has come upon me since I have been settled here. One wants to do nothing, one wants to see no one, one looks forward to nothing. One is too lazy for thought, but not too lazy for musing. Two different things, as you know well. Memories of childhood, at first, came flooding upon me. Wherever I went, whatever I looked at, they surged up on all sides, distinct to the smallest detail, and, as it were, immovable in their clearly defined outlines. Then these memories were succeeded by others, then, then I gradually turned away from the past, and all that was left was a sort of drowsy heaviness in my heart. Fancy, as I was sitting on the dyke under a willow, I suddenly and unexpectedly burst out crying, and should have gone on crying a long while, in spite of my advanced years, if I had not been put to shame by a passing peasant woman who stared at me with curiosity then, without turning her face towards me, gave a low bow from the waist, and passed on. I should be very glad to remain in the same mood, I shan't do any more crying, of course, till I go away from here, that is, till September, and should be very sorry if any of my neighbours should take it into his head to call on me. However, there is no danger, I fancy, of that. I have no near neighbours here, you will understand me, I'm sure. You know yourself, by experience, how often solitude is beneficial. I need it now, after wanderings of all sorts. But I shan't be dull. I have brought a few books with me, and I have a pretty fair library here. Yesterday I opened all the bookcases, and was a long while rummaging about among the musty books. I found many curious things I had not noticed before. Candide, in a manuscript translation of somewhere about 1770, newspapers and magazines of the same period, the triumphant chameleon, that is, Mirabeau, Le Paysan Perverti, etc. I came across children's books, my own, and my father's, and my grandmother's, and even, fancy, my great-grandmother's, in one dilapidated French grammar, in a parti-coloured binding, was written in fat letters, Ces livres appartiennent à Mademoiselle Edoxie de Lavrine, and it was dated 1741. I saw books I had brought at different times from abroad, among others Goethe's Faust. You're not aware, perhaps, that there was a time when I knew Faust by heart, the first part, of course, word for word. I was never tired of reading it. But other days, other dreams, and for the last nine years it has so happened that I have scarcely had a Goethe in my hand. It was with an indescribable emotion that I saw the little book I knew so well again, a poor edition of 1828. I brought it away with me, 
lay down on the bed, and began to read. How all that splendid first scene affected me! The entrance of the spirit of the earth, the words, you remember, on the tide of life in the whirl of creation, stirred a long unfamiliar tremor and shiver of ecstasy. I recalled everything, Berlin, and student days, and Fraulein Clara Stick, and Zeidelmann in the role of Mephistopheles, and the music of Radzivill, and all and everything. It was a long while before I could get to sleep. My youth rose up and stood before me like a phantom. It ran like fire, like poison through my veins. My heart leaped and would not be still. Something plucked at its cords, and yearnings began surging up. You see what fantasies your friend gives himself up to, at almost forty, where he sits in solitude in his solitary little house. What if any one could have peeped at me? Well, what? I shouldn't have been a bit ashamed of myself. To be ashamed is a sign of youth, too. And I have begun, do you know now, to notice that I'm getting old. I'll tell you how. I try in these days to make as much as I can of my happy sensations, and to make little of my sad ones, and in the days of my youth I did just the opposite. At times one used to carry about one's melancholy as if it were a treasure, and be ashamed of a cheerful mood. But for all that it strikes me that in spite of all my experiences of life there is something in the world, friend Horatio, which I have not experienced and that something almost the most important. Oh, what have I worked myself up to? Farewell for the present. What are you about in Petersburg? By the way, Savile, my country cook, wishes to send his duty to you. He too is older, but not very much so. He has grown rather corpulent, stouter all over. He is as good as ever at chicken soup, with stewed onions, cheesecakes with goffered edges, and pea-goose. Pea-goose is the famous dish of the steppes, which makes your tongue white and rough for twenty-four hours after. On the other hand, he roasts the meat as he always did, so that you can hammer on the plate with it, hard as a board. But I must really say good-bye. Yours, P. B. End of section 11